Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we've got Emma on, who is an osteoarchaeologist. I hope I've got that right, Emma. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> okay, great. Um, should we jump straight in? Do you want to tell everyone um, a little bit about what you actually do, Emma? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I'm an osteoarchaeologist, which is uh, basically an archaeologist with a specialism um, in the study of human skeletal remains. Um, it's sometimes called bioarchaeology in the US, they often refer to it that way, um, but in the UK and in other places we, we call osteoarchaeology. Um, and it has a, a lot of overlap with forensic anthropology and archaeology. So um, there are kind of two main aspects to my job, that is the, the field aspect, that's where the archaeology comes in and that involves um, the process of excavating and recording the remains at an archaeological site. And the second aspect, which is the laboratory aspect that involves um, an anthropological study of the remains in order to find out information on um, demography, health, disease, diet, uh, stature and migration of people in the past. So are you focused on sort of a history side of it? It wouldn't be anything forensic, uh, police sort of side, if they were to dig up ancient bones, well, not ancient bones, but maybe bones from a few years back. Correct. So that's the big difference um, between what I do and forensic anthropology. Um, usually in forensics, we're talking about like roughly the last 80 to 100 years uh, and usually within a kind of medical judicial framework, whereas osteoarchaeologists usually um, work with older remains. So where did this sort of interest in, in bones and, and archaeology <laughs> and history come from? I guess? It's a big mashup, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, it's a, you know, it's not one of those typical career choices that appears on the, the forms that they give you when you're finishing up high school. Um, I, I became really interested in archaeology as a discipline um, when, when I learned what it was um, when I was 12. And uh, we had a, a history class and they told us, oh, you know, this is what archaeologists do. And I said, oh, my gosh. I had never heard of that as a as a possible career choice. And I went home and I said to my parents, I'm going to be an archaeologist. And they said, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, what are you going to do exactly? And um, I just I had in my mind ever since that moment that um, that was the only career that I wanted to have. I became very interested in Egyptology. And um, I wrote to an Egyptologist when I was 13 or 14 who said, don't even think about it as a career choice. There's so few jobs, just forget it. Uh, if you want to do something similar, you know, go into archaeology, but without a specialization. And, um, and so I sort of, you know, like backed off the Egyptology part for a little bit. Uh, and then I sort of just became interested in bones. That was around the time when some of those CSI programs came onto TV and bones and programs like that. And, um, and that's also when the university started to, to offer degree courses in forensic anthropology, osteology, and I thought it would be a, a cool specialism. So what, what does those um, degree courses entail? Um, kind of a, a mixture. <laughs> it's, it's a real mixture, actually. Um, so usually uh, 
you would study uh, archaeology, so field methods, and usually you would have to get a, a certain amount of field experience um, to graduate from your undergraduate or master's degree. And then you have, um, like I was saying before, the second aspect, which is the, the laboratory analysis. So in most cases, in, for universities that offer those courses, they're going to have a reference collection of human remains that are available for your study. And, uh, you know, in your courses, you're going to learn how to estimate someone's age, sex, um, stature, create what's called a bioprofile um, of people in the past. And then they, they give you exams on, on those topics, but practical exams in a, in a lab environment. I always think it's incredible how we can find so much out about a person um, that died hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago, just from their bones. It always blows my mind. It's amazing. And the, the techniques are, are becoming even more impressive. I have a lot of colleagues that are involved in um, stable isotope analysis, for example, that can give information on diet and mobility in past populations. You have people working with ancient DNA. So um, you have, you know, the aspects that, that, I do that's mostly a macroscopic analysis, um, sort of looking at what the bones themselves can tell us. And then we have more chemical analyses uh, that can go a little bit deeper. So a huge amount of information we can get from bones, absolutely. Once you've, you've got this information, this, uh, you obviously dig up bones, take them back to your lab and study them. Once you've got that information out of the bones, what do you sort of do with it? How do you go about creating this sort of spider web of information and relating it to what actually happened? Oof, well, that, that depends a lot on, uh, on the project. So um, if the first aspect that we're involved in is the, the excavation of the remains themselves in the archaeological site, probably there is someone that has come along before us, someone from our team that has done a lot of the historic research and looked at, um, you know, the reasons for, for excavating while the site that we're excavating at, um, who might be buried there, what things can we get, what information can we get from the historic record first, if it exists. Um, and then after we have that information, we can kind of piece it all together, but it's, it's not easy. Um, just to give you a, an example of one that has gone very well so far, that doesn't usually happen like this. But um, we're excavating at a site where we found um, uh, a skeleton that was covered in um, green stains. That usually means that his body has been in contact with bronze. And um, all around this skeleton, we found these bronze buttons that were uh, buttons of a military uniform. And uh, I mean, I'm one of the people that was excavating that skeleton, I think it was fantastic, but I wouldn't have a clue personally where to go looking to find out more information on, on military uniforms. But luckily, um, I have another archaeologist in my team that sort of cleaned the buttons, um, could see a word written on them, which was uh, rei, which uh, we think probably refers to um, the first regiment of the Spanish army. and. Um, through that, then we can look at who was involved in fighting in a war around the time that we think that these people were buried there based on other objects that we have found at the site. And hopefully through military records, try to identify who that person is. Uh, we can do that because um, 
those are remains from late 18th, early 19th century. Um, but if we go further back in time, something like a positive identification is, is harder to obtain. That is, that's amazing, isn't it? The fact that you can do that with, you know, they're a couple of hundred years old and you, essentially you just found a grave and you're able to track back to possibly who it was. Exactly. It's very what is, exciting. What is it about that you personally get out of, uh, what excites you about doing this and doing the archaeology and, and digging up the bones? What is it for you personally that, is it the history side and finding out about the person maybe or the culture? Is that what it is maybe? Um, yeah, to an extent. I think on a more individual level, um, a lot of the people that we are excavating, they're not um, kings or queens or wealthy people. These are just everyday people. Um, they probably had no idea um, when they died that their bodies are going to be studied, you know, hundreds or thousands of years later. And those are just kind of average people. And it's fascinating to me how average people lived in the past. Um, the most exciting thing for me is probably uh, being the person to open a grave after so much time has passed. You're the first person to look on those remains uh, ever since they were buried. And that's, um, that's something that's, well, it's a privilege, but it's very exciting. Yeah. After university, how did you sort of go about getting a job? How does sort of this industry of archaeology work? Um, <laughs> that's a tricky one. So I, um, I was quite lucky um, because during my undergraduate degree, I was able to um, take some time off. I took a break of two separate semesters um, to try to get as much fieldwork experience as I could. Um, this is a really difficult field to get into in the first place. And um, I knew that I had to have a kind of competitive CV if I ever had any chance of finding a job. So I, um, uh, I graduated my, I, I did an, an undergraduate degree and then I graduated my master's um, having already excavated uh, in about seven different countries. So I was lucky because I could make a lot of contacts. I had a lot of um, kind of diverse experience on different sites. And um, I happened to graduate from my master's right when an archeological company in Spain was looking for an anthropologist to join their team. And uh, in Spain, the way into anthropology traditionally has been first doing a medical degree and then specializing in usually forensic anthropology because it's been a big thing here in the last years, uh, the exhumations of remains from the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And um, they, don't, they don't have a lot of anthropologists and this team was looking for one to join them. I was living in the UK at the time and I had written my master's thesis on remains from the Spanish Civil War. So <laughs> it did, it really did. Um, and, you know, that job I got through, through contacts that I had made um, while I was studying for, for my undergraduate degree. Um, otherwise, it's a very difficult field to get into because there are, there are not a lot of um, jobs that are advertised as kind of osteoarchaeology positions. Um, I said at the beginning that this career is a specialism within archaeology. So for a lot of people, they might be able to find um, an archaeological technician job working on a commercial site. 
And then, you know, their employers knowing that they are specialized in human remains, if they find remains on the site, they will probably get to, to dig them and perhaps study them in a lab environment. Um, but there are a lot of short-term contracts and, uh, and that's a big issue in, well, in both archeology span and, uh, and osteology. This might sound like a bit of a silly question, but mm -hmm. in what kind of instances do they decide, okay, we're going to call in an osteoarchaeologist? Is it every time they, they find graves or do sometimes you don't even get called in at that point? Uh, it really depends. And I think um, there are probably some, you know, some geographic differences to that as well. So um, in certain countries, it's a requirement if they find remains that they have to stop what they're doing and call in an osteologist. Um, in other countries, they just, uh, it would be an archeologist that digs the remains. And the problem, uh, and I think that that's starting to change now. One of the issues that we have um, when we are given remains to study that have been excavated by someone that doesn't specialize in human remains is that sometimes, you know, the bodies are mixed together. Sometimes you have multiple um, people in the same box, for example, and then that makes our job uh, much, much more difficult. So if someone who knows about bones is doing the excavation, then it makes the lab work much easier, but it also means that we can get a lot more information from, from that. And then there are projects that start out um, with people knowing that, you know, I mean, I've worked on several projects where they were going to dig a cemetery so they knew before they even you know put the shovel in the ground that they were expecting to find human remains and you would expect on a site like that that they would have uh, an osteoarchaeologist uh, as part of the team did you watch um that four-part three-part documentary where um it was cross rail and they had to dig up um, a huge grave in london um and it was it was it was incredible and they had uh, some osteoarchaeologists on there i believe and the kind of things they could find out about the people just through their bones and where they were um, buried and how they were buried it, it kind of it really piqued my interest in the subject uh, i didn't i didn't see the documentary um but there's the, actually the uk has a, a huge number of projects that they're working on the, at the moment um that require osteoarchaeologists i don't know i'm not sure if you've heard of the um the Highways England uh, project that's happening in Yorkshire at the moment. And the same thing, thousands and thousands of burials as they kind of um, work on this highway. And uh, the, the issue with those kinds of excavations is that you're really in a time crunch. So there is a developer and you have yeah. to decide to dig and analyze as quickly as you can. Do you think that's where possibly a lot of the osteoarchaeology work is going to come from in the next few years? Because there are so many building projects going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've never seen as many job advertisements for osteoarchaeologists um, as in the last couple of years. There's a, you have a lot of construction um, works happening at the moment, um, railway lines and, uh, and highways, etc., and they need people that are specialized in human remains. But then you have a problem, which is once those projects are over, what happens to, uh, <laughs> to all of those osteoarchaeologists? Uh, that's the, the short-term kind of projects that we, we spoke about before. So it's great to have employment for six months or a year, but then once those projects are over, um, it's, it's tricky unless you, you go into academia. 
it's it's such a big sort of vast um job role you have you have got you know that whole digging on site and excavating as well as all the lab work it's kind of really varied in what you're able to do um for you is there a, a, a particular area that you prefer more than the other um i personally would always choose to be in the field over the lab if i if i had the choice um i say that as someone that works in a a warm country. <laughs> I think maybe that uh, that answer would be different if I was every day in the cold, rain, um, miserable and digging. But I, I think most of us have a preference um, for one or the other, but it's the combination that makes this job really fantastic. So uh, I usually um, work for probably five months of the year in the field, um, possibly a little bit less overall. And then the rest of the time I'm in the lab. And that's because it takes a lot longer to analyze a skeleton than it does to dig one. Is a large part of this, and it sounds like from our conversation so far, is building up a network and um, a name for yourself within the industry. So when one project does finish, you've got a network to go back to and say, hey guys, that project's finished. What's going on? elsewhere absolutely absolutely and um, it's also a matter of kind of not closing yourself off to to opportunities Um, I always tell my students that it's great to specialize in bones we all want to play with bones all day long but uh, if you have a chance to work on a Roman site where they know they're not going to find any bones. Um, don't lose or don't waste that opportunity because you're always going to be making contacts on sites and you know knowing about different kind of aspects of archaeology makes you a better osteologist as well, even if you're not working with bones 100% of the time. You've obviously got a, you said you had a master's degree to um, for what you do. How important is uh, the education before going into this uh, field? It's pretty important. It, it's kind of uh, expected, I would say, that people have um, at least an undergraduate degree, but usually an undergraduate degree will give you a kind of uh, general academic background for what you're going to do. But if you want to specialise in something um, within archaeology, then usually you would you would do a master's afterwards. Um, and, you know, that helps with, it's a very practical job. It's a very hands-on job. And so any kind of extra academic experience that you can get is, is going to help you down the line too. I'm sure you'll tell me there isn't an average day for you, but um, <laughs> if you had to describe one, what would it be? Um, well, uh, today, for example, I've been eight hours straight in the lab. Um, we're working on a project at the moment uh it's it's a very complicated site but basically it's a huge pit where they threw the bodies of people for at least 1200 years possibly a little bit longer and so we're working with this gigantic puzzle um, piecing together bone fragments and um for the last kind of five months my average day has been just looking at very very small pieces of bone, um, trying to work out firstly what bone it is, then um, which side it comes from. So if it's a a femur, um, for example, is it a left or a right femur? And then I need to look at um, 
where in the femur is that bone fragment from? Is it from you know, the upper proximal part of the bone? Is it from the diaphysis, the shaft? Is it from the distal end? Um, and then recalling all of that to try to determine uh, how many people were buried at that site. Um, wow. So far, we have analyzed about 70,000 fragments. Um, and so, you know, how many individuals is that? Uh, we haven't run um, the, you know, the final count yet. We're yeah. just, we've got one context left, but actually a lot less than you would expect. Uh, I think we're at around 500 people right now. Wow. And, um, and we have complete remains as well, um, but only seven bodies so far. Well, what do you think the pit was? Um, the, the legend is that, um, the pit is a place where the bodies of the rear guard of Charlemagne's army were thrown after the battle of Roncesvalles in the eighth century. That is unbelievably so, cool. Yes. How cool. That it's, is so Indiana Jones. It is. It's a very cool site. It was my dream site wow. uh, for a very long time and we're finally digging it. So it's very exciting. That, see that's so cool i'd love to i'd love to do that but when you're when you're doing this and you've got so many bone fragments mm-hmm. where do you even begin like you must be so patient and you must have a real sort of mind for uh, problem solving uh, patience definitely comes into it um i i guess you know that sort of you have to figure out your own way of um of going about how to analyze these things. And at the moment, there's two of us in the lab. Um, We have a system in place. We know exactly what we're going to be doing every day um, because we have been doing it for the last few months and it's just kind of a routine now. Um, uh, There there is logic behind the way that we do that. But um, if we were analyzing, for example, um, a complete skeleton, the normal thing would be that we would lay the skeleton out um, in what we call anatomical position, so more or less um, exactly as the bones are um, in the body of a, a living person. Um, then we would do an inventory, so checking boxes of all the bones that are present. We would look at aspects of the skeleton to try to um, create a bioprofile to look at age and sex and stature. We would look at um, any kind of pathologies or disease that the person may have had. And then we would finish um, with an overall photo of the skeleton and of any uh, individual photos of any kind of interesting pathologies, teeth, things like that. Um, And something like that could be around, well, it, it should be a little bit less than one day per skeleton if it's one person, one anthropologist or one osteologist working on that. Um, and then for the, the fragmented remains, is, the process is a little bit different. Um, and it's, it's kind of a mess. It's all over the place. We're working on one context that has 15 boxes. So it's just a matter of taking like everything out of the boxes and saying, okay, all of the arm bones we're going to study over on this table and all of the leg bones we're going to study over on the other side of the room and, and working from there. And a context is like a, a level, isn't it? A, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there must be so much, uh, especially now, so much data available to historians, archaeologists, um, and you must be building up such a good bank of knowledge. Do you have to develop skills in sort of analysis and, and working with data? Uh, yeah, 
data sets are super, super important for what we do, um, especially if you're working on a site with hundreds of skeletons. Um, each of them have, you know, individual skeletal reports, but it would be illogical to fill out those reports. And then at the time that you're going to publish or write up um, your final report on everything, having to go through kind of individual reports, it's much easier if you have a really good database um, set up from the very beginning that can then make kind of statistical analysis a lot quicker as well. You uh, you mentioned earlier, obviously, patience is a is a, a key virtue. Um, being <laughs> being an archaeologist, what other um, personality traits do you think um really help? Um, I think probably attention to detail is is very important. Um, the biggest one for sure is patience because you're uh, you're going to be doing very repetitive tasks um, a lot of the time. Sometimes you're going to be doing things that you don't want to be doing. Um, and, uh, well, probably if we take into consideration the field part of the job, um, some kind of physical stamina is also important because we spend a lot of time, um, on our knees, bent over digging, but we're, we're also expected to, you know, like take heavy wheelbarrow loads of, of soil and run it up, um, a steep soil heap, for example, spoil heap. And I think that that can be sometimes a surprise to people um, when they first start out in the field that, you know, that there are positions that you have to be in, in archaeology that you can't really plan for or train for. There are muscles that you're not used to using. So um, there are physical aspects to this job, too, that are super important. What would be some of the biggest um, positives or opportunities that you've had so far um, in the in your career that you think, wow, that was amazing? I mean, the Charlemagne um, pit must be uh, must be up there. But is, is there anything else that stands out for you? Um, I've been involved in the last ten years or so on um, some absolutely fascinating projects, uh, mostly in the north of Spain, um, where I'm based. And um, one of the ones that was really interesting was. Uh, a site that was along, located along the medieval uh, Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James, which is a medieval pilgrimage, um, that one of the big medieval pilgrimages that people took to uh, Santiago de Compostela in the northwest of the Iberian Peninsula. And um, that's a tradition that people still follow today. Um, that route is, is very, very popular amongst pilgrims. And um, we found at that site, uh, well, it was recorded as a pilgrim hospital, a place where people that who were walking the way, if they got sick, um, they could stay there for several days, they would be cured or they would die and be buried in a cemetery. And um, there was a team that did some excavations several years before us. And they said, oh, well, we didn't actually find um, any evidence of the pilgrim cemetery. And once we started to dig there, um, we started to find bits of scallop shell and the scallop shell is a symbol of the Apostle St. James in medieval iconography. And um, eventually we got down to some tombs where people were buried with complete scallop shells with two perforations exactly like the modern pilgrims have today um, so that they could carry the shell as, as a a symbol, kind of like a passport, um, allowing them safe passage throughout the territory. And then we also found um, the base, the, the iron base or spike of a pilgrim's walking stick. 
And if you look at the iconography, these tombs match exactly the kind of pictures that you can see of medieval pilgrims that are not that different to, to, to the ones that, that walk the Camino today. So that for me um, cool. was super exciting. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is, yeah. Uh, we've spoken to a few archaeologists and it's always kind of mind-blowing mm. hearing what, you know, I think uh, Dan and I are both are uh, quite into our history. Um, but for you, what would be some of the uh, the less favourable aspects of this industry? Um, the the Well, the transient nature of the jobs would probably be the first thing that comes up. I spoke about it before. You know, um, I, I am involved in... Uh, research company so we have to look for our own funding but um, you also have commercial archaeology work um, that is paid for by developers but that you can usually never predict in advance when it's going to come and when it's going to finish so um, it's quite difficult to sort of plan your year if you like um, without knowing kind of what you're going to be doing in six months from now um, am I going to have a job a year from now if there are no projects or am I going to have to, to go somewhere else or do something else? And um, the other main negative, um, which I'm sure will come up sooner or later, is that it's um, one of the lowest paid jobs for the uh, academic requirements that are involved. So it's, you, beat me, uh, you beat me to yeah. the next question. We, yeah. we always talk about um, salary on here, but what we do is we go away and we look for some data and we just give an average figure and mm-hmm. see if you would agree with that. Mm-hmm. So sort of the average salary in the UK certainly was around 20,000, but based on the conversation we've had with previous sort of archaeologists, mm-hmm. it's, it's not really that simple because it depends on how many contracts you get, how long those contracts are for and how good your network is to a certain extent. And I think as well, if you're abroad, they could potentially pay for board and food, mm. which obviously doesn't come into your salary. True, true. Um, I think that, that that's probably very close to what uh, an average uh, starting salary would be. And um, the kind of downside to that is that uh, it, it doesn't, really grow that much <laughs> from there uh, unless of course you go into academia so um, yeah it can go up depending on what kind of pay band you're on that that might be dependent on how much experience you have what other projects you have been involved in um, of course networking is absolutely essential in this job because um, it's only through other people that you're going to find out about what other projects are happening and you know if someone recommends you for another project then you already have um, a foot in the door um, but yeah I would I mean I, I work I don't work in the UK but I'm kind of try to keep up to date with what the the average salaries are are there for osteologists and yeah I would say that that's probably quite accurate so we also talk about um, sort of how the internet and social media and things has changed career career paths and and what you can do in careers do you think there's sort of space or um, room within archaeology itself to take more of an advantage of social media and uh, and content creation to maybe help boost salaries and, and have your own kind of um, curated uh, uh, audience maybe 
Um, that's an interesting question. I know that um, there are some fantastic social media accounts out there that are boosting kind of community engagement and interest in archaeology. Um, but that might not be the same audience that is responsible for boosting salaries in archaeology. So I'm not sure that social media is, is the right medium to go through it. Yeah, um, I guess I guess if you create your own audience, like uh, curate your own audience, sorry, and in different careers and different subjects, we've we've had people on, and I said you can sort of um, not sell them things, but almost in a way sell them things and and produce like video content and and extra things. And I just wondered if if that's being done in archaeology already. It is. It is being done, and um, you know that there's always this debate in archaeology: is how do we um, kind of push people to value the work that we do more. Um, it's kind of an exotic career, I think, for a lot of people. They're not aware of, um, of what work, what, what the kind of job involves. Um, and then it's a matter of kind of, well, uh, push it, putting pressure on, on developers and on archaeological companies to kind of push those salaries up. And unfortunately, um, there's probably a lot of individual pressure on ourselves to say, no to projects that are not paying a kind of uh, livable wage yeah. I, I guess if there's so many people looking for those jobs then somebody fresh out of university is going to take a job just for the experience right absolutely and you can't fault them for that either no not at all Logical. for for you what would be something that uh, was not in the job description that you have to deal with um that you never expected uh, going into this world um, there are a couple of things. I think in the, in the last kind of two years or so, it's become really obvious to me that um, this, you know, I, I specialized in human remains because that's what I love. But what I didn't realize when I went into this job is that you kind of, to succeed, you need to be a kind of jack of all trades. You need to be very flexible. Um, you need to have a really wide skill set that goes much further beyond digging or, or analyzing bones in the lab. Um, in the company that I work for, um, they expect us to be very familiar with uh, how to use geographic information systems or kind of like mapping within archaeology using computers. Um, I recently did a course in photogrammetry, which is the creation of 3D images um, from photographs. And um, I applied cool. that mostly to, <laughs> to human remains of, of pictures of skulls. Um, and you, you are constantly having to kind of renew your skill set, but much further beyond um, your small specialism. And I think that was one of the things that I didn't, I didn't really expect. Um, when I when I first started, I probably should have. Um, uh, you have to be kind of very very open to doing things beyond um, just your little, you know, your little field. Um, from what we could tell previously about bones um, and our techniques and skills in, in analysing them to where we are now is obviously vastly increased. But what's something you're excited, uh, like capabilities looking 10 years forward, um, how will that change in, in your opinion? Um, I think the future is is 
very much um, towards the kind of chemical analyses that they're doing with bones. I mentioned stable isotope analysis before. That's something that's becoming really, really common um, to involve in most of our projects now that, you know, five or 10 years ago, you could only do it if you could afford it, for example. Um, and that can um, give us information on, you know, what people were eating in the past um, that can tell us more about their lifestyle or differences between populations or differences between people within the same population can give us information on um, migration and movement of people, which is really interesting and, and potentially even um, origin where they were coming from. And then um, I what I hope is going to happen in the next kind of 10 years is that a lot of those chemical tests within archaeology become more accessible in terms of um, uh, cost. So um, there are some skeletons that I would love to, to be able to run kind of a pathogen test on to determine whether someone had tuberculosis. And that kind of test involves running ancient DNA samples which is extremely costly. And um, I think that probably those kinds of costs um, will come down in the next years. And then those kinds of analyses will become much more widespread. And that's, that's what we sort of saw in the past with um, C14 dating and now with, with stable isotope analysis too. So do you have any sort of personal projects or, or things you'd, you'd really love to do? You mentioned, you know, you, you had a real interest in Egyptology in Egypt when you were first sort of thinking about this career. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you'd, you'd love to tick off and do in your career? Um, I would I would love to be involved in a, in a project in Egypt. But, um, you know, I, I mentioned before this site that I'm working on at Ronthisvai is the, the, the battle site. Um, that place was an absolute dream. And, and when they took me there 10 years ago, they said to me, some of my colleagues said to me, you know, this could be your site one day. And I always laughed because it was such an enormous project. I thought I could never take on something like this. But at the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, that would be my absolute, you know, dream project to work on. Um, and that's going to be something that probably um, occupies at least the next five years of, of my life. So mm. I'm not thinking beyond that at the moment. Um, but, you know, one of the fantastic aspects of this career is that opportunities are coming up all the time. And mm. um, they come up in lots of different geographic regions and different time periods. And, uh, and who knows what's going to pop up. We had, uh, we had Dr. Chris Norton on a oh, while yeah. ago the egyptologist yeah, yeah. Um, and he was talking about going out and um and finding some lost tombs he reckons um there's some clues to um so maybe we could all jump on that one. <laughs> oh, fantastic you set it up i'm i'm there i'll do it i'll do it <laughs> um and and we just sort of like to finish on um how how does somebody begin to get into the industry have you got any tips for and we know obviously you have to go down the degree and, and to a certain extent master's route but is yeah. there anything they can do before they get to that stage to, to make themselves more um, attractive to any prospective employers absolutely um i i always say to my students if you have the chance to get field work experience go out and get as much experience as you possibly can on a range of sites um, 
it's very, very common for people going into this career to do a field school. So um, usually that's a, a paid placement where you basically learn all of the techniques in a field environment um, that are applicable to that kind of job. And that, that kind of um, field placement may lead to an internship or even a paid position that looks fantastic on your CV, especially if you are, are recently graduated. Um, volunteer and do as many things as you can uh, in your university environment. If you have a professor that's doing a project on bones or that needs help cataloging a skeletal collection, um, volunteer, take a couple of hours a week to try to do that. It's not just um, for your own knowledge, but um, but to show people that you're there and you're willing to to go the extra mile and I think that that shows not just on your CV but through the context that that you will make and uh would you still go into this industry knowing everything you know now 100 percent, absolutely brilliant well thank you so much for your time Emma we've uh we both really enjoyed the chat thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you for inviting me to come on oh, thank pleasure. you uh where can people find you on uh, social media see what you're up to yeah, um, I'm on Instagram as the wandering archaeologist with underscores in between. The wandering archaeologist. Yep. We will uh, we'll make sure we tag you in that. In Fantastic. That post. Thanks again, to Emma. Thank you both. Talk to you soon.